You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. In this episode, I interview MidCurrent founder Marshall Cutchen, and we talk about the history of MidCurrent, environmental threats to our fisheries, ecosystem thinking, and some recommended reads from Marshall. Hope you enjoy. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies. Sustainability, sales, and marketing strategies for the 21st century business. Profit sustainably. So I thought I would just start off um, as I typically do with these and just to sort of ease into the to the conversation it's just a little bit of of um of background on on yourself and sort of how you um wound up founding midcurrent and um sure yeah sure so so i um i uh left when i left uh, graduate school i went into the publishing business i wanted to uh, run a magazine company um when i was in my 20s and uh ended up uh, working for a few different magazine publishers and running a division of IMS Health when I was 25. And then one day I um, uh, had a, uh, a uh, an awakening, if you will, that corporate life was not, uh, despite the fact that I was making a lot of money. And so I went to Florida and bought a skiff and... Um, and uh, started fishing uh, by myself around Key West and, and ended up becoming a guide, having no intention to become a guide, but became a guide for 12 years down there. Really? And then, when, yeah, uh, then uh, I specialized in fly fishing for permit um, and tarpon and bonefish and I got to fish with some really great people. Um, and uh, then I decided I wanted to think about raising a family. I was 38 years old, and so I also wanted to write a couple of books. So went to Montana with my uh, future wife and spent a couple of years out there. Then uh, we decided to raise a family, so I moved back east and got back into the corporate world. Um, and in 2003, while I was still working for a big corporation, I, I saw what was happening with Google uh, search and uh, and the web and uh, social media and all that kind of stuff and I thought you know there's an opportunity here and and uh, in my mind um, the reason I started Midcurrent was to sort of counter uh, or correct a lot of the misinformation that I was seeing in digital media for fly fishers actually at that time it was you know a lot of the stuff had existed in use groups and and uh and things like that so started midcurrent and um within about nine months it was the most trafficked website on it was i think it was the the one of the first fly fishing blogs in it and uh it was definitely the first that was continuously published um but but within nine months it became the uh the most popular fly fishing website on the internet and uh went from there you know just kept building it um it was a one-man show for about three or four years and then uh, uh we started selling ads and paying writers and photographers and 
and it just kept growing from there. And now it's about uh, 25,000 pages of content, and we just relaunched a new version of the site in December. Yeah, yeah, and I'll, you know, when I first started, so, um, you know, I didn't start fly fishing until I was 24. I mean, I guess I had tried it a couple times, like on a family vacation, but not really, you know, without any success and didn't care for it too much, I guess. Um, And then when I was 24, I started getting into fly fishing more seriously in terms of just absolutely loving it. And um, mid current was, so that was in 2008. So mid current was like, you know, uh, just staple go to resource for, you know, like, Hey, you want to just go in there, search, find interesting information and articles and, um, have always been a, a subscriber and, um, have certainly benefited from, from, from y'all doing what you do. Um, so thank you for that. Sure. Um, thanks but, for thanks for thanks for sticking with us. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's it's awesome, and the new site is um, really great. Um, love the look and the feel, and super easy to navigate, and just uh, um, just it just it just looks a lot better. Oh, uh, you can you can say improvement. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, so anyway, so t- tell me a little bit. Um, so I, so you mentioned you were a, a former guide. So one of the things and and having um, talked to some some folks in fly fishing is there is a little bit of a theme of I tried to make it work in the real world and just couldn't hack it. I'm not couldn't hack it, but I just was sure. like, that was just not my not a priority for me. You know, like that was just not what I valued. Um, and not how I wanted to spend my time. Um, yep. So you moved to the Keys and became a fly fishing guide. Um, I mean, what what, what was was there like a single moment or a revelation where you were just like, I can't. This is it. Like no more. That's it. I'm out of here. Yeah, I think the the moment actually was uh, when my. Um, immediate superior asked me to, to lie about some, uh, financial figures. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> so that, that was, the <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that that'll was sort do of it. a signal that, that, uh, you know, maybe I was compromising my own principles. Uh, I mean, I think anybody who's been in the corporate world for a while, while knows that, uh, your, your, the things you're asked to do don't always align with your, uh, morality or a sense of what's right, um, but for me it was a little, just a little bit too much to bear. And I was, you know, I was twenty in my mid twenties and and um, still pretty idealistic uh, about the the world in general. So uh, that was the trigger that that made me think maybe I needed to go off for a while and think about this. <laughs> right. Um. <laughs> Well, that's awesome, and and so having spent you know twelve years down down in the Keys, um, guiding, um, I mean that had to have been a, a a great experience. Are, are there are, are there noticeable differences in the fishery today compared to when when you were down there? Um, well, first first the good part, um, it, the, those twelve years were were uh, other than raising a family and having kids and being married for. For 20 years, that they were the best years of 
of my life are absolutely priceless in terms of what they taught me and um, how I, how much I learned from, about uh, people and and myself. Um, but on the on the subject of how things have changed, um, I, you know, one of the problems we've got culturally in addressing environmental issues, in my opinion, is. Uh, this concept of shifting baseline, which I'm sure you've you've touched on many times before, but um, you know the average person when they goes to the when they go to the Florida Keys today, still sees what they think of as just a you know incredibly beautiful setting and and uh, you know uh, giant ocean vistas that you know and sparkling sunsets and and the fishing is still you know. Uh, uh, Good, not compared to what it used to be. Um, so it's really hard for people to uh, appreciate how much things have changed unless they've had uh, a few decades of experience. Um, I started there, I was fishing there in 1977 or 78, and uh, to me, uh, the 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 experience of seeing that place for the first time was just life changing. And uh, and that was, you know, of course, uh, when I decided to become a guide, the, the thing that really was calling me back to it. But but um, the difference in um, biodiversity and marine ecosystems and uh, general health of the nearshore ecosystems is just really stunning. Um, it's hard to even get a grip on it because a lot of the data that we have now um, is not historical because we didn't have the data from, we don't have the data from 30 years ago. Um, variations in funding and lack of funding and, and even recently uh, Florida cutting back on a lot of their monitoring and water quality measurement um, means that uh, the the historical trend lines <clears throat> that need to be traced are 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 still very hard to follow, and uh, the research teams at the universities are not getting the funding they need. They're doing a great job, but uh, just to give an example, we don't know whether the changes in the seagrass beds and the keys are. Uh, are uh, because of loss of diversity or, uh, you know, there could actually be some epigenetic changes going on in the seagrass species themselves. Um, so when you have a algae bloom, like has been very common in Florida Bay, uh, which is in the north part of the Keys, um, uh, those algae blooms have been increasingly common in the last uh, couple of decades. Um, they kill off the seagrass populations, and you see a lot of reports of seagrass coming back, but what is actually happening is there's only one, there's only one species of grass that's coming back, and it used to be that uh, that benthic marine system had multiple species of grass. Uh, so it may temporarily look okay 
but in fact, it's not okay, and it and it's lost its um, its resilience. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, but but just you know, from an overall perspective, um, to my eye, and I've you know been fishing down there for quite a long time. The changes are are really uh, stunning. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. 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 And I mean, so, that, that, that's the I, I'm all for it, it being long-winded because I don't have you know I I didn't start. I have a, a, some some friends of mine um, who we make an annual trip down to the Everglades and um, and have fished in the Keys a few times and um, this will be our our fifth year coming up of our, of our trip down there, but that's what I know of it, you know? So having someone who sure. um, has fished down there for, for as long as you have and has, has witnessed that change is, you know, that that's the, you know, the, that intellectual data, you can't, you know, you really can't put a, a dollar value on that. You, you, you've witnessed it. Um, which is which is interesting to me because you know because we go down there and we're like man this is amazing you know <laughs> yeah I know I know well, it, it is amazing but you know as I tell people think of how amazing it is right now and imagine imagine it being ten times better than that right yeah unbelievable right? I mean um, yeah so, so you know when I was down there uh, when I first started permit fishing one of the biggest issues was seeing the fish because. On all of the grass flats, the grass was so deep and so dark that it was really hard to see fish. Now it's much, much easier to see fish. Um, that may play a role in the number of total number of, of permit and bonefish and tarpon being mm-hmm. caught down there. Wouldn't be surprised if it is. Interesting. But is that is that a signal of better ecosystem health? I don't think so. So. You could say, well, you know, if more fish are being caught, then that means that 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 everything's fine. Well, I don't think so. I don't think that's a very accurate uh, perception of of what's going on. Well, it's 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 interesting that you mentioned that, and I saw this, and admittedly, before I before I even say this, like I I scanned this article, but they were basically saying that. You know, what you're going to start seeing um, because of the loss of phytoplankton due to climate change is that, in fact, water, you know, oceans will become bluer and greener. Um, right. And that was, you know, I mean, m- maybe that's part of it. I don't know. But it, it's, it's it's pretty interesting to, to see, you know, how interconnected it all is. Sure. A lot of people, you know, look at uh, beautiful pictures of the Caribbean waters, and it's crystal clear and and blue and and uh, inviting, and they think, oh gosh, that's really clean water. But but in fact, the reason that the uh, colder uh, waters of the North Atlantic are, you know, green and murky in a lot of cases, is because they have so much more life in them. Um, the, the the warmer tropical waters are actually much more sterile. Mm. Yeah, and I mean that that's it's you know I, I was born and raised in Savannah and live in Charleston, and I mean that was the the thing that most people they look at our water and think it's really dirty, but it's in fact just very nutrient rich. I mean yep. that's and that's yep. not just clever marketing. You know? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> no, no, it's it's the marsh. You know the the coastal marshes there. Um, 
were huge, you know, hugely significant in seafood production and species health and all, and all kinds of things, yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know if I mentioned, but I, 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 we had a house in the Isle of Palms when I, really? until I was in college. Yeah, so I spent all my summers down there, fishing and crabbing. Um, oh, love it. So yeah, so so I got to see again what that was like, you know, and it was just really just an amazing uh, environment. Uh, maybe the changes aren't as noticeable there as they are in the Keys, but I'm sure they've changed quite a bit. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, you know, it's even from, you know, from when I was a kid to now, you know, we, I, I, from, you know, this is anecdotal. This is just from what I've witnessed, but like, you know, you don't, you don't catch as many crabs as you used to. And that, you know, just, that's just one species. Then what are, what is the ripple effect on the entire ecosystem? You know, um, if that starts to dwindle, um, so what? So you know, since we're we're, we're kind of on on this topic of you know environmental um, threats, I mean, what are what is the? Would you say are you know it, maybe it's one or maybe it's several things? Um, but what are some of the greatest environmental threats to our fisheries that are that are most concerning to you? Uh, saltwater or freshwater or both? Um, sure, let's do both. Sure. So I think we sort of on the, we'll start with saltwater since we uh, since we touched on that first. Um, I, I think uh, I think the attention you know public attention uh, is focused on commercial and recreational fishing and catch rates and quotas and all of the sort of uh, highly visible um, measurements of of ocean health. But um, I think it glosses over some really important uh, uh, missing uh, pieces like uh, the impact of uh, agricultural pollution and other types of pollution, certainly CO2 pollution and its uh, contribution to global warming, which is leading to ocean acidification and and coral bleaching. Um, so, so uh, I, my perspective is sort of tied to my um, thinking about sort of the ethos of of uh, fishing and and its relation to to cons- conservation in general, I guess. Um, and that is that you know we ne- we need to pay attention to the larger picture, and I don't think uh, anglers in general, and I, I could, you know I'll, I'll blame myself um, in part for not being um, as educated as I could have been in a lot of cases on a lot of these issues, but um, anglers in general not really wanting to see the larger picture uh, and address address the issues in terms of priorities. So we could we can establish uh, recreational quotas and we can encourage people to release fish and we can we can uh, uh, be responsible, you know, not throwing our beer cans in the ocean the way the way everybody did, you know, 30, 40 years ago. But if we're doing nothing to improve the health of nearshore ecosystems as a whole, in the end we're we're fighting a losing battle, um, in my opinion. Yeah. 
So I try to encourage anglers uh, who care about uh, the future of fisheries to think uh, in more holistically in terms of, uh, you know, if they if they have time, energy, or money to put into working towards solutions to to look at uh, the larger scale and look at the priorities and think about those things that are having the biggest impact and put their efforts into changing the things that make the most difference as opposed to uh, doing what I like to call uh, buying their environmental indulgence, you know, sending off their $35 membership fee to, to whatever organization. And I'm not, I'm not, not downplaying the, or, the importance of those organizations, but I, but I think that it's easy for us to, to feel like we're doing something when we may, may not really be doing anything at all. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I guess that sort of covers the saltwater side of things. I, I, I think there's, you know, could talk forever about it. Um, but, you know, critical habitats like Chesapeake Bay, like Florida Keys, uh, all up and down the east coast of the United States uh, the, and Gulf Coast, those areas that I'm familiar with, have seen huge degradation in the last 40 years. And uh, I think, um, again, you know, the we need to really think intelligently about what the priorities need to be and not get sidetracked on on issues that aren't going to have necessarily an impact on future generations and their ability to go out and enjoy uh, enjoy the water. Um, yeah, so. and, I, and, and I'll just say the um, to, to talk a little bit about that, um, I guess to add to it maybe, but, you know, especially since you have experience here in the low country, you know, spending summers in Isle of Palms, you know, one of the, one of the cool things that, um, that different nonprofit conservation groups do here in Charleston is, and they do it in Georgia too, um, is oyster reef restoration. And, um, that is, uh, you know, the, the, it, I guess the point I'm making is that it's not just, hey, you know, I support conservation and I'll do what I can to do less bad. It's about how do we actually improve the fishery and the the health of the ecosystem. And, you know, oysters are a, a keystone species here, you know, and you have healthy oyster beds, you have cleaner water, you have better fishing because it provides habitat for, you know, smaller creatures that work its way up the food chain. Um, and I think that's a that's a good example of um, you know not just doing less bad, but actually imp- improving yeah. the fishery for a, the future generations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. Yep. Um, all right. So, what about uh, what are, what do you what do you what are your thoughts on uh, freshwater um, and environmental threats that are that are relevant and, um, and, and yeah. Critical? So. So I think uh, you know that they're not altogether different. I think uh, I think there is an under uh, underappreciation of the impact of agricultural pollution uh, on uh, on species health. Um, I think there's certainly an underappreciation of the impact of global warming. Um, on, on species health um, and it's a uh, 
it's another situation where uh, applying band-aids, you know, when uh, what you really need is emergency surgery, (laughs) (laughs) is is distracting to people. Um, And, uh, you know, especially, I think the, the... there's a, there's a big difference between the eastern half of the United States or the East Coast and the West um, in the United States in terms of challenges because uh, the East Coast, of course, is densely populated. It actually has a, a, a great deal of, uh, of tree cover, forest, forest growth, uh, second, third, fourth generation forest growth. Um, and you know, by comparison, uh, the the West is uh, you know overgeneralizing, but much drier. Uh, water resources are much more scarce, and getting scarcer. Uh, uh, tree and forests are uh, showing more immediate. Uh, results of of a warming climate and changes in um, you know parasite populations and, and things like that. Uh, you know, beetle devastation is something that everybody understands because they've seen all the pictures of it. And you know, in the last couple of years, we see a lot more wildfires because uh, of global of, of rising water temperatures and changing in the resilience changes in the resilience of of the forests themselves. So. Um, you know those those challenges are probably more acute in in the in the West. But on the other hand, the West has more, you know, quote unquote, natural resources. There's more trout fishing in the West than there is in the East. Uh, the water, generally speaking, is cleaner in the West than it is in the East. Um, uh, that doesn't mean that it's that it's uh, you know it's not worth. <laughs> Paying attention to the east, but right. but it's just a different level of challenge. I remember, um, I can't remember. I don't know the dates. Maybe it was ten years ago that Atlanta um, went through a period of, of severe drought, and uh, and uh, those uh, groups that and, and government agencies that had advocated for protection of of rivers and trout species. When it came to whether or not um, people should have water for irrigation and drinking, uh, quickly uh, broke all the rules on on protection of rivers um, uh, in order to uh, ensure continued economic stability and growth. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's a. Uh, it's it's not a situation that the eastern United States is not immune to the same to the same issues or um, and also needs uh, solutions, but but it's obviously really acute out here in the West. Um, dewatering rivers uh, as populations grow is a huge problem in the West, mm-hmm. um, and I think the more we learn about rivers as vast ecosystems and not just these, you know. Uh, uh, channels of water running through the landscape, but instead, you know, really being the underpinnings of of, of a really complex uh, uh, system, uh, ecosystem, the more we realize that, you know, we can't just go through and, and, and take water out of, out of the rivers at will uh, without paying a big price for it. 
Well, yeah, and 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 one of the things that I'm, uh, as you were describing this, and and a couple of things that you said, which is kind of a, a little bit of a a theme, I think, in in our conversation so far, is you know thinking holistically and about ecos you know ecosystem thinking, you know, n- not just I need water today, take it, like sure. having sure. that. Um, I actually read a oddly enough th- this morning about um, the, the famous scientist and I forget his name but it's Humboldt who started making those types of connections right of l- looking absolutely looking at hey look this is not just the, the, the effects of this have ripple effects so you know we're, we're all interconnected ecosystems you know every everything plays a critical role so you have to think in ter- think broader I guess is, is, is the ultimate conclusion yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a great example of that is um, in recent years, you're seeing an increasing number of, of great uh, trout fishing rivers in the West have uh, see less insect, dramatically less insect life, you know, fewer caddisflies, fewer mayflies. Um, I think it's more it has more of an impact on mayflies because they're more dependent on clean water. But, mm-hmm. but you know, when, when, you, when you erase or you degrade that, that primary food source for for a species, then it has a ripple effect. You know, we don't even know what the ripple effects are, but we know that it's going to have an impact on fish populations, whether it's those fish changing their dietary habits or or whatever it is. But but in general, the 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 systems themselves become less resilient and more vulnerable. Um, so, uh, no, you're you're absolutely right. Um, Getting back to something you said earlier too, I just would would comment. Um, when I started Midcurrent in 2003, I, I um, created an informal rule that we would never publish pictures of grip and grin mm-hmm. uh, uh, photos. Um, and um, my my thinking, uh, honestly, about doing it at that time was uh, that we needed to promote. Um, better handling of fish, uh, more catch and release, and uh, greater awareness among anglers that, uh, that you know, as I think it was uh, Lee Wolf who first said, you know, fish are too valuable to be caught only once. Um, mm-hmm. But as I've gotten older and become more aware of the of these issues, my thinking is, has, has shifted uh, to thinking that the reason we need to um, stop worshiping ourselves <laughs> and our and our and our trophy uh, our trophy uh, trophyism mentality or whatever it is our egos um, is 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 simply that we have to start seeing fish as just a part of this overall uh, uh, system that enables us to go out and enjoy doing what we do. Um, they're not, you know, I've written about this a couple of times, but, you know, you take a fish out of the water and you hold him up for, for a picture um, in front of the camera. Um, it's really a celebration of you, not the fish. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's, it's a misplacement of, of priorities again, or a misplacement of, of uh, awareness uh, when we 
celebrate that kind of stuff. And I, by the way, I've taken plenty of grip and grin photos in my life, and I've got, I've got plenty of evidence that uh, I was on the wrong side of that equation. So, but, but, but I think you know the, the point is that you know those of us who who know more about uh, the impacts uh, of what we're doing out there uh, do need to provide some leadership. And I think you know, for example. Um, I think we can provide leadership by not messaging the kind of things that that sort of take fish out of context and treat them more like uh, a really key part of of a much larger and more interesting and complex uh, system. Yeah, and 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 something that that so completely agree, and and I'm just as guilty as anyone is um, of, of of a grip and grin. Um, although the the more I learn, the 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 more I try and change my my ways there, but um, I, I, it's it, what we're talking about, like ecosystem and ecosystem services and holistic thinking. Um, you know, it's also talking about valuing a, a, a mayfly just as much as a brown trout. You know, it, I think sure. that's, I think that's part of it is is our valuation of what's more valuable in the stream, the brown trout, or is it, you know, um, a white fish? You know, they certainly, you know, you can get upset when you catch a, a, a white fish if you want to, but they play a role in that ecosystem. So why do we value that less? I don't, I don't, I guess maybe it's ego. Um, you know what you're after and you know what you want, but that's, uh, I think that's part of it too, is understanding that, you know, the, you know, everything, you know, from the from the plants that surround the river, they all play the role in contributing to um, this overall ecosystem and to not value them is missing the point. Absolutely. Yep. Um, so anyway, all right. So we, we, we've, we've sort of talked about threats. And one of the things that I like to, to focus on is to try and talk about solutions or, or success stories. Um, because I read, a lot of uh, a lot about environmental threats, particularly climate change and, and plastic pollution and, and, and things of that nature. But um, it's also pretty depressing to only to read those things. So um, I also like to focus on you know what are, are, are there any interesting success stories or anything like that that, that you would like to share? Um, just you know I, I'm I'm leaving this sort of wide open, but anything along those lines. Um, because I, I do like to try and promote a, a message of of hope here. Sure, uh, sure, sure. Well, I mean, I, I think um, it is easy to lose sight of success stories. And um, and I think uh, you know, I had this conversation with somebody not too long ago um, because they kept sending me, you know, news stories of, uh, for example, sturgeon recovery in the James River or, you know, hey, they found us. They found an Atlantic salmon in this river in Connecticut. You know, wow. You know, there was one fish. They found a fish. You know, um, and I and I just thought to myself, well, what's the difference between that story and, and a really, a really, a real success story? And so I tried to figure out in my head what it what it was. I'm always trying to figure out what it is that is meaningful and what's just you know pure drivel. So. Um, in uh, my my area of knowledge is really uh, South Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's where I've spent most of the last thirty years that I've been involved in environmental issues, thinking about um, 
And when I was in uh, the Keys in the uh, late 80s, I was a founding member of a group called uh, Reef Relief. And our original mission was to prevent anchor damage to the reefs by commercial diving operations. Um, so we began by installing buoys on the reefs down there. They're still down there, and the Reef Relief is still an organization with a somewhat changed mission, I think. Um, but one of the things we did uh, help accomplish was getting the National Marine Sanctuary established in the Keys uh, in, I believe it was 1991. Not sure of the actual date now. Um, but I do believe that without the National Marine Sanctuary being established down there, that the Keys would be in much worse condition than they are right now. Um, National Marine Sanctuary System brought lots of good, intelligent people working on on large-scale solutions, so establishing management plans, uh, creating uh, protection zones, um, and and studying the impacts of of uh, overfishing and pollute, near shore pollution and so on and so forth. And, and uh, one um, bright spot in the Keys, at least, not, not in Florida overall, is that um, it used to be that, that uh, septic systems in the Keys, most of the Keys was not connected in, with, any sep- with any sewage system, waste disposal system at all. And um, a lot of money has been spent some federal money, some state money, uh, to uh, basically seal the, you know, create a sealed system so that uh, septic systems aren't leaching uh, bacteria and uh, into local waters. So the nearshore waters of the Florida Keys, and I'm talking about within, you know, a couple hundred feet of the shoreline, especially are much, much cleaner than they were 30 years ago. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so, so a lot of good, you know, changes uh, and a lot of good effort by, by some really focused people has resulted in some, some positive stuff down there in the Keys. Uh, in South Florida in general right now, I don't know if you're, you're aware of what's been happening uh, regarding Everglades restoration and the ending of discharges to um, to the east and west coast from Lake Okeechobee, but um, there's been a dramatic shift in political will uh, to address the issues down there. Um, something that, honestly, a lot of us never thought we'd see in our lifetimes or in the next 10 or 20 years. Um, but a uh, new Republican administration has taken the bull by the horns. Um, Brian Mast, um, and in particular, um, who is a congressman from, uh, I think it's St. Lucie County, but I'm not sure exactly what the name of the district is, um, has introduced legislation to, um, to take the uh, issue of of water being incorrectly um, uh, managed down there to being one of, from being one of simply, you know, basically, uh, you know, gerrymandering the water from in one direction or the other uh, to suit the interests of agriculture or flood control or this or the other, raising it uh, to the level of a of a true health issue. Mm-hmm 
which is really the thing that's going to, I think, make the difference in being responsible and 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 uh, forcing the players who, up until this time, have not been forced to be responsible for for um, water quality to actually uh, begin doing their jobs down there. So, uh, a lot of really good changes happening right now uh, in in South. Florida, and uh, there's still an incredible amount of work to do. There's still uh, 100 years of of toxic sludge on the bottom of Lake Okeechobee, Mm -hmm. Um, but but at least uh, we're not, you know, there's some some light at the end of the tunnel that maybe we won't continue to do all the stuff that, that contributed to the problem in the first place. Yeah, and the, and um, I've 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 kept up uh, with it a little bit, but that was um, definitely probably the most exciting thing that I think is has happened uh, certainly this year for Florida. And I know that there's so many different organizations that are involved in helping to uh, support that. But it, as always, like you said, it's been the lack of political will, and now um, that's starting to change. So that is definitely amazing news and you know I I didn't I honestly didn't pay attention to it as much until you know like I I mentioned earlier you know some friends and I go down to the Everglades every year and we camp and fish and you start to realize you know like I mean how I mean first off just what an incredibly unique uh, place the Everglades and the Keys and, and everywhere is but um, you know, to even the the thought of putting that at risk is like mind numbing. You know, I mean, it's just it, it's such right. a cool place. It, 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 if, if you haven't been down there, I I cannot recommend it enough. Um, it it is a truly probably one of the most unique places on the planet. Um, yeah, no question about it. And uh, definitely excited to see that there's uh, progress uh, being made to, to protect it. Um, but the interesting thing that you mentioned too, it's like, it, it comes down to, you know, and, and if that's what it takes, I'm all for it. You know, talking about, well, look, this is going to affect your health. It's like, you know, okay, well, hang on. We need to pay attention to this. Let's build platforms on that then, you know? <laughs> well, you know, as I, as I, as I mentioned to somebody this morning, there was a, there was a Washington post article, I think on January 29th, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but the impacts of, of rising uh, temperatures on fisheries and in agriculture, et cetera, et cetera, and and uh, it's just a reminder of something that um, Teddy Roosevelt said a uh, century ago. You know, he said that that um, Americans don't respond to um, information; they respond to catastrophe. <laughs> so, I'm paraphrasing, but you know the fact. The, the fact is that that um, most people won't lift a finger to get involved and and help uh, make changes until you know the bad news is knocking on their personal front door, and uh, that unfortunately may have been what happened in uh, Florida this past year with uh, people literally not being able to walk outside. Uh, because the the you know the the cyanobacteria um, was literally you know burning their um, their nasal passages. Right. You know? right. So so uh, you know then then of course people start equating that with loss of property value, and then the you know then the bells start to ring, and uh, people 
say, well, maybe this is actually something we should be paying attention to. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Um, and I'll, I'll, I guess I, I do want to be cognizant of, of your time, Marshall. Um, yeah. But I've, I, I was wondering if so. I've got a couple more more questions for you, just just from a time perspective. Sure, I'll try not to be so long winded in my response. No, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm. All, you're making you you're, you make my job easy. Um, <laughs> um, so. A couple of things. One, so I've always loved, so shifting gears a little bit here, um, I've always loved um, mid-currents. Uh, you always have, like, the latest in fly fishing books, and um, which is obviously something I enjoy reading and have, and have you know, made a, a lot of book purchases based on, on y'all's recommendations. And um, what are uh, some of anything new happening on on that front or any any uh books related to conservation that that you'd like to recommend to someone who may be looking for the next good read oh gosh there are a lot of them yeah right right (laughs) i mean um i guess they're they're kind of two separate uh categories you know fly fishing versus uh conservation um books um you know, I, I, and I think it depends on whether your interest on the fly fishing side is more in how-to or uh, in uh, in just sort of the culture of, of fly fishing. Um, Yvon Chouinard just came out with this second edition of Simple Fly Fishing, which is uh, um, focuses on Tenkara-style fishing. And I say Tenkara-style fishing because it's, he sort of took Tankara and turned it into something a little bit easier and more accessible, I think, for a lot of people. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a really great book. Just philosophically, you know, trying to simplify the sport of fly fishing is a good thing. Yep. Really deep in the weeds, and there's nothing wrong with that either. I mean, you know, one of the one of the great and most interesting aspects of fly fishing is being able to, you know drill down and make an exact replica, you know, of a specific species of mayfly that match a hatch, that sort of thing, and do the same thing in salt water where you've got, you know, a specific species of shrimp that you're trying to imitate because it's clear that the, the fish are keying in on that. Um, but but also there's the other side of that, which is, um, you know, we, we need and we want people to not be intimidated by the sport. So that's a great book for, for helping with that. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a, um, uh, there are a couple of good books in the, uh, in the tying world. I don't know if that's, they're very interesting. There was also a popular book that came out this last year called The Feather Thief, which is a, a nonfiction story about a guy who was actually a, a tire and collector in England who, uh, who broke into a major museum there and stole, and stole, um, and a, a, a very rare collection of feathers um, to uh, to to sell on the black market. Oh my God! Just a great great story overall, and a really kind of a statement about endangered species and the role of museums and stuff like that as well. Interesting. Um, on the on the general environmental uh, front, I just finished a great book called uh, The Overstory by Richard Powers. Um, and if you're an environmentalist, it's uh, highly, I highly recommend it. It's not only, um, uh, he's not only a great writer, um, but the story itself is long and complex and 
and I just uh, I, I, it was the kind of book I was reading. I, I wished it would never end, but it's kind of its focus is on trees and the uh, and with the backdrop of the greater awareness we have of the importance of forests and and forest communities um, to uh, to our own you know happiness as human beings. So uh, that's definitely up there on the list. Well, I, I you, you mentioned this. Uh, well, I guess you didn't mention it, but I know that you know. With, with what Midcurrent does, um, it what what role and do you think that you know social media has in, in helping to create more awareness about the, these environmental challenges and, and threats that we face? Well, as you can tell from my comments about uh, uh, trophy photos, um, right. I think it plays a big role. Not always good. Not always on the right side of of the of the messaging. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we, you know, I think there's, you see some some changes in awareness. Just the fact that emergent strategies uh, exist is is quite a statement about uh, where we are now versus where we were 20 years ago. Um, I think there is a large, a more, a more, there's more energy within fishing communities uh, around. Um, correcting some of the things that we didn't get right the first time mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know as far as digital media uh, and and publishing and and social media they're not always the same thing but but I, you know I think messaging matters I think people uh, especially younger people and I know you know I'm concerned more about the next generation than I am about our own generation mm-hmm. Um I have kids and who love the outdoors, and I want them to have kids who who have a chance to experience some of the stuff that I've experienced. So, um, I think that those people who are uh, new new to fishing, new to fly fishing, especially, uh, have we have an opportunity to get it right as far as the messaging goes, and and I think that requires some commitment to saying the right thing. Um, I'll give you an example. My son, um, who's 18 years old, um, is helping us with our Instagram um, account. And he came to me last night and he said, Dad, you know, you really need to publish more grip and grin photos on the Instagram account because we'll, we'll get more follows. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Bigger the fish, the more the follows. Absolutely. Well, yeah, girl in a bikini or a big fish, right? <laughs> um, or both, or preferably both, right? Right, right, um, right. So, so I, and I, you know, I, I said to him, you know, and it was, it was kind of a tough situation, you know, because I, I told him, hey, you, you're responsible for, for growing our account, but on the other hand, there are certain rules that we can't. That, you know, they're artificial rules, but they're really important rules because this is a problem that we have. You know, we have a problem with people, young people especially, perceiving the sport of fly fishing as just being one of, you know, you go out, you hop on a plane, you fly to, uh, to Wyoming, you catch a big trout, and two days later you you enjoy all the new followers you have on Instagram, and that's their perception of the sport of fly fishing. Right, right. Um, right. That's 
not a message I think we need to be telling kids. What we need to be telling kids is it's a whole lot more interesting and it's a whole lot deeper than that kind of superficial marketing would lead you to believe. So I don't think we're doing any favors by by uh, encouraging uh, that kind of of culture, if you will, and social sharing. Yeah. Um, uh, so. Um, okay, and then um, last. So that that question just sort of came out of the blue, and I was like, oh, I wonder what Marshall thinks about this. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so final question, I guess, is, you know, if, if you could leave a message for anglers out there about, you know, the, the importance of um, protecting the, in, the environment for, for nothing else, for our fishery's sake and, and future generations, um, what, what might that be? Uh, I think the message is, you know, that the answers to the, to the issues that we see, you know, looming on the horizon or that we're or that we're facing right now, you know, we're facing uh, loss of of anadromous salmon on the west coast. We're facing depletion of of um, forage fish and 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 game fish like striper stripers on the east coast. Um, I think the answer lies in widening your perspective um, and paying attention to. Um, sort of the the relative impacts of of the things that that are out there um, in the media, um, you know, and be be skeptical, um, be skeptical of of everyone, including Midcurrent or anybody else who's who's sending a message uh, that you may feel is not is not digging deep enough and not addressing uh, the issue in all of its complexity uh, because um, uh, you know we, we have a tendency to oversimplify uh, a lot of these problems or to think that if we fix fix a problem superficially you know if we, if we um, I hesitate to give examples because then it sounds like I'm I'm picking on people, but I, mm-hmm. I'm not picking on anybody. But you know, small projects uh, that are are intended to to raise money, but don't have long term impacts are are good in at one level because they get people involved in in making a difference. But uh, oftentimes the biggest differences are made. Uh, at the level of politics and public engagement. And um, I would just encourage people to think in terms of the public interest as a whole, as opposed to um, always uh, thinking of private interest first, because I think we're all in this together. And again, I think the, uh, the, the correct place for us to be putting energies is, is thinking about the next generation. Yeah, I um, I absolutely agree with that, and um, I think that's the what's going to make the difference ultimately. You know, is realizing that you're 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 stealing the next generation's ability to want to enjoy and, and protect the sport that we all do. Um, but so with that, uh, Marshall, I, I I I will wrap it up. But I would just like to say on a um, on a personal note. Um, you know, Todd Tanner had, had put us in touch, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago when I was first 
starting emerger strategies and yeah i remember that yeah and uh i just wanted to thank you for you know being willing to, to listen and and uh give some some advice and you know thank you for everything that y'all do at midcurrent um like i said the it's a website that I check often and uh, certainly look forward to y'all's newsletters and, um, you know, just really appreciate you um, carving out some time for me today and I really enjoyed our conversation. Well, it's very, very nice of you to say all that and I, I really do appreciate it and, and uh, thank you for doing what you do too. And so we're all, we're all uh, working toward the same goals, I think. And, um, I think, uh, you know, we've got a passion to, to see the right thing happen. So, so thank you as well. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. For more episodes, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.